back. Woo! Yes. Yes, indeed. In shape, fighter shape, ready to go. Now, hopefully you're in shape as well, because, you know, it, first service was pretty quiet, which you've heard me say a thousand times at this point, but uh, welcome. Glad that you are here with us this morning. For those of you online, welcome as well. Good to see all of your faces here. Uh, we have been looking forward to and praying for this morning for a long time, and it is so good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, open them to Revelation chapter 2. If you see James and I really just laboring and sweating over the text this morning, it's actually just the windbreakers, all right? They are quite warm. They are quite warm. Uh, if you are a guest with us this morning, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, as you come in, we are starting a new series, uh, actually, that we began two weeks ago now called Seven, and it is a, a series where we are looking at the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation, where Jesus gives seven words to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Last, or two weeks ago, uh, sorry, we, we started with the church in Ephesus. And if you remember, the word that Jesus gave to that church in Ephesus was return, return. There was a lot of good things that Jesus had to say about the church in Ephesus, a lot of things that they were doing very well. But then, remember, he said, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. And so what Jesus did is he called them to return to their first love, to come back to their first love, which was Jesus himself. Last week, we talked about the church in Smyrna, and the word that Jesus gave to them was remain, remain. If you'll remember, they were facing intense persecution because of a variety of things. They were not participating in emperor worship, and, and so they were being persecuted very heavily by uh, a lot of the unbelieving Jews in Smyrna. And Jesus' word to them was, remain faithful even in spite of your difficulty that you face. Remain faithful in trials. Remain faithful in the day-to-day -day things that you are doing. Remain faithful in speech even as you are slandered by those who are taking shots at you. Remain faithful, Jesus said, and I will give you the crown of life. This week, we come to the church in Pergamum, the church in Pergamum, and the word that Jesus has for us this morning as we look at Pergamum is this, recognize, recognize, the thing you can't do when everyone's wearing a mask, right? And have no idea who half of you are as you walk in. Good to see your actual faces. Jesus says a lot, again, of good things to the church in Pergamum, things that they're doing well. But then if you notice in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. One, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam. We get to verse 15. He says, also, some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In other words, you've done some things right, okay? You're doing some things well, but you've allowed some false teaching to creep into your midst. Some of these other people in your church are, are holding to false teaching. And by doing so, by allowing this to happen, you have compromised yourselves. And so he calls them to recognize where they've compromised and repent where necessary. Now, to be fair, if we're being fair, and we try to be fair around here, if there's ever a place to compromise, it was Pergamum. Pergamum was like the... the poster child for city where you might compromise your faith. Let me give you a few details regarding the city, um, just so you have some historical context. It's always important as we get into the text. Number one, it was highly academic. 
Pergamum was a highly academic place. Uh, it contained a magnificent library of over 200,000 volumes in it. Now, by today's standards, that's not a ton, but you got to remember, this is in the ancient world prior to the printing press. So this is 200,000 handwritten volumes. Very, very large library. In fact, second largest library in the world, only next to Alexandria. So this is a, a very, very large, impressive library. And as a result of that, Pergamum was a very attractive landing spot for scholars. Scholars would go to cities typically where there was a high volume of works that they could study and, and learn and then begin engaging in public discourse. Uh, and so they would go to places where these libraries were, Pergamum being one of the top spots. They didn't have Amazon, right? There weren't any digital copies of these things. So they would go where they could find it. And this was not necessarily a good thing. It seems like that would be a good thing, but it's not necessarily a good thing. And here's why. Because early scholarship, early academia, was heavily focused on pagan philosophy, which is, if you know anything about it, not super Christ-centered, and by not super Christ-centered, I mean not at all, right? Very far from Christ-centered ideology. And so there was a large amount of secular, of secular thought driving the, the discourse in uh, Pergamum. Number two, uh, it was beyond being a place of, of, of scholarship, it was a center of medicine, uh, there was the famous temple of Asclepius there in Pergamum. Uh, Asclepius was the pagan god of medicine that was uh, worshipped and revered by the ancient pagan people during this time. In fact, interesting little note, their symbol for Asclepius was a coiled snake, which is incidentally the same symbol today that we have for modern medicine. Uh, if you've ever seen the symbol for modern medicine, it's a snake coiled around a stake of some kind. Uh, this is pulled from the ancient uh, pagan god of medicine, Asclepius. In fact, uh, some scholars think in verse 13 where Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Some people think that was maybe a reference to Asclepius' temple because uh, the, the, the verbiage that was being used at this time regarding Asclepius was that he was their savior. Savior terminology obviously reserved only for Jesus, and so uh, some people think that maybe Jesus was uh, referencing that. Not only was it a center for medicine, it was a center for worship. Worship was a very, very big part of the, the Pergamum culture. There were many, many other temples apart from Asclepius. Temples of Jupiter, Minerva, Apollos, Venus, Bacchus, and then of course the temple of all temples in Pergamum was the temple of Zeus. It contained a 40-foot-high uh, altar where they would provide sacrifices towards Zeus. And so, again, the Satan's throne terminology that Jesus is using here, if it wasn't in regard to Asclepius, it was probably with regard to all of the pagan worship that was taking place within the city. You see, Pergamum was a place where it would have been very easy to compromise your Christian practices and thoughts. It was a place that was surrounded by false teaching of all kinds. Of, of pagan worship, of secular philosophy and ideology, uh, of pagan values. And so Jesus calls them to recognize where they have compromised within the church and then to address those things. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at Jesus' words to Pergamum. We're going to look at what he commended them for, because that's an incredibly important thing for us to understand as well, but also what they got wrong. And, and I think what we're going to find, if we're being honest here, I think what we're going to find is that there are many similarities today in our modern world that we can learn 
from Pergamum in. Uh, are we ready? Even if you have a mask on, you can say amen. It's, it's, it's okay. There it is. Oh, it feels so good to hear voices. We've just become so accustomed to preaching to these two cameras back here. You know, we're, we've been dying on the vine here, waiting for someone some to come them, in. Some of them are still upset that they had to put their pants on to come to church. It's true. Couldn't... Like, why am I here? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, here you are. Glad you're here. Glad you put your pants on. Let's look at his commendation to Pergamum first. Now, in my mind, I think it is so important. Uh, I, I think it must be said, it's so important to look at the things that each of these churches got right. And, and there's a reason for that. It's typical for us when we read Revelation 2 and 3 to look at the drama, to look at the bad things. That's the exciting stuff, right? That's where Jesus gets, gets a little intense, and so we like to kind of go there. It's important for us to see the things they did right, if anything, for two reasons. One, it was important enough for Jesus to say it. And so if it was important enough for him to say it, it should be valuable enough for us to hear it. But two, it makes these churches relatable, right? I mean, Pergamum wasn't doing everything wrong. They were doing some things right. They were positioned in a very secular place where the gospel was desperately needed, where the light of Jesus was desperately needed. And so they, they were doing some things right for the faith, and, and that makes them relatable to us. I like to think that if Jesus wrote a letter to City on a Hill, that he would have some things to commend us for. Now, I, certainly I would imagine there would be some instruction that we would get from him as well, as all churches are filled with, with fallen, broken people. And, and, and so I would expect some correction, but I would expect him to at least commend us for hopefully some things. Hopefully we're doing some things correctly. He might say stop making videos. He might say stop making videos. You're right. And stop making training videos. <laughs> Two things specifically that Jesus says to Pergamum that they're doing right. Number one, he says, you hold fast to my name. You hold fast to my name. In other words, you're not ashamed to be called a Christian. You're not ashamed of the name of Jesus as you follow Jesus in your life. Now, remember last week, James talked about in Smyrna, the workers' guilds, which are like similar to labor unions today, where you could join a guild, it would guarantee you a certain amount of money, it was typically the better jobs that were part of the guilds, but you could only join the guilds if you had participated in the burning of incense towards Caesar, right, emperor worship. And Christians were known for not doing that, for not participating in that for obvious reasons. And as a result, could not join these worker guilds, which meant the jobs that they secured were not as good. They weren't, they weren't given as many benefits. They didn't have as much money coming in. And so they, they faced a certain level of, of economic persecution for holding fast to the name of Jesus. And yet what Jesus says is, you've still done it. You've still held fast to my name. You've not been ashamed to call yourself Christ followers. Now, now listen, I, I want to be very clear about this. It's so important that we understand this. The name of Jesus matters to our faith, does it not? It is important to our faith. I don't have time to really unpack this. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself. Let me give you just a quick list from the New Testament of some things that we have in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 tells us that there is salvation in his name. So if you're going to come to the Father, if you're going to have a relationship with God, it has to come through the name of Jesus. John 14, verses 13 and 14 says that we have answered prayer in his name. So there are a lot of religious people in the world, a lot of people praying all these different prayers, but what we're told from the scripture is that prayer is answered in the name of Jesus. James 5.14, we find that healing is in his name. Healing is in his name. Matthew 18, 20, we have true fellowship 
when we are gathered in his name. John 20, verse 31, there is life in his name. Philippians 2, 9 and 10, he has a name that is above every name. Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Where? In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. In other words, everywhere, in all places, the knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus' name matters. It matters so, so much, but it comes at a cost, doesn't it? It comes at a cost when we, when we claim the name of Jesus as we proclaim our faith. You'll hear people all the time say things like, well, I believe in God, you know, or, or athletes. I want to thank God for this win, <laughs> as if God divinely powered this team to victory, unless you're the Cowboys, um, which he doesn't do often, apparently, right? Um, you can say that you believe in God all day long, and that's, it's a very vague thing to say. It doesn't really say much, because what, what God are we talking about? It could be any God. It could, be, it could mean that you're, you're a Hindu or, or a Muslim or that you're ethnically Jewish or that you participate in some major or minor other world religion. There's, there's thousands of them, literally thousands of world religions in the, mo- in the modern day. In the ancient world, if you said, I believe in God, it could mean you worship the emperor, or that you go to the temple of Asclepius, or you worship at the, at the altar of Zeus. I mean, it could mean any number of things. But if you say to someone, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, suddenly things become a little more clear and narrow, don't they? Because if I follow Jesus, and Jesus said no one comes to the Father except through me, then what I'm saying is I hold to a view that only through the name of Jesus does one come into fellowship with God. Does one find forgiveness of sin? Does one find eternal life? All of a sudden, much clearer guidelines in what I believe. And that, folks, comes with a cost. Jesus said, you didn't deny my name. You didn't deny my name. You weren't like Peter who swore he would stand and he would protect and they're going to have to come through me before they get to you, Lord. And what did Jesus say? You're going to deny my name three times before the rooster crows. No, Lord, there's no way. And when the rooster crowed, he, had, he denied him three times. And it says the text says he wept bitterly. Now, Peter learned his lesson in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Peter has turned into this great, bold man of faith. But the reality is, look, holding fast to the name of Jesus in the, faith, in, the, in the face of persecution is difficult. And yet he calls, it to, uh, calls us to that. And Pergamum stood the challenge. Secondly, it says that Not only did you hold fast my name, but you didn't deny my faith either. Now, whenever we see the word faith used as a noun in the New Testament, it can mean one of two things. It can mean either personal faith, like my personal faith in Jesus, or your personal faith in Jesus, kind of your personal walk with the Lord. Or it can mean something more like the faith, right? Christianity at large, the biblical teaching of faith. Jude, the small little book in the New Testament near the end, says that we are to contend for the faith once and for all delivered from the saints, right? So, so the reality is here that what Jesus is getting at is not only did you proclaim my name and, and hold fast to the name of Jesus, but you walked, you carried out the biblical commands in your life as you adhered to the scriptural teachings. You did what you were supposed to do. You worship, you give sacrificially, you love God, you love others, you do the things that I call you to do. So there were some commendable things happening in Pergamum. If, if, I imagine if you were to walk into the church in Pergamum, 
you'd see a lot of really on fire for Jesus type of people. People that you, you might want to do community with and, and think, man, there's something going on here. So he had some commendations for them. He had some good things to say. But James is going to come up and deal with his correction for the church. When you hear those two statements of commendation, you kind of think, well, gee whiz, where could he go from there? I mean, they didn't deny his name. They didn't deny his faith. They kept the faith. They didn't deny his name. So Jesus then immediately cuts to the chase because he says, but I have this against you. In other words, there's a, there's a problem going on that you need to recognize and Obviously, you need to address it. And, and what it was, Derek's already indicated that, is that the termites of compromise are slowly eating away at the foundation of the church in Pergamum. Now, before I speak about how that looked and, and what it really was, I want to mention to you that there are two kinds of compromise because sometimes we kind of use the word compromise as really a bad thing. And it's not always bad. Because there is a good kind of compromise. A good kind of compromise would be, we could say it like this, it's compromising in principle. And this is a good thing. Because we're not compromising principle, but we are compromising in principle. In other words, we, we live our lives with a willingness to give up some things that we may want, some things that we may desire, some things that just are our own personal opinion, in order to be able to to relate to one another. Now, if any of you have ever been, have been married more than 15 minutes, you know that compromise is a part of marriage. If you're going to make it, you're going to have to compromise. Not about principle, but compromise in principle. You enter into that relationship, hopefully, with an intention that I am willing to give up some of the things that I just want. Some of my own opinions or some of my own desires. I'm going to be willing to do that in order to come together with this other person. And so that kind of compromise is obvious something that we always are having to do. But there's another kind, and it's what he's addressing here specifically, is when we compromise on principle. And this is bad. It, this is never good. Because what this means is that we are willing to abandon truth, we are willing to abandon heart principle in order to make life a little bit easier. And so in verse 15, this is where uh, Jesus is speaking to them. He says, there are some, now notice some, that's very important. He said, there are some among, among you who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is the second time in the first three letters that the Nicolaitans are mentioned. The first time was in the letter to Ephesus in the very first. And there Jesus commended them because they hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now he's speaking to the church in Pergamum and he says, some in your midst are holding to this teaching. And we don't really know for sure. There's not a great deal that historical scholars have been able to determine about the Nicolaitans, about what really their teaching was. But there is some good indication as most things were in the ancient world and really even in our day today that their teaching was about compromising on moral principle and moral purity. But if you back up before verse 15 to verse 14, we do know what he's talking about here. He says, and also some of you are holding to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now we know what the teaching of Balaam was. It was compromise. 
Now get that down. The teaching of Balaam was known to be compromised, not in principle, but on the very truth of God, to compromise on principle. Now some of you are very familiar with Balaam's story, and, and there are parts of it that are really kind of humorous, but it's also very tragic. In Numbers chapter 22 through 24 is where Balaam's story is told. So let me give you a quick summary so you understand what this means. There was a pagan king who was by the name of Balak of Moab. Now the Moabites were a people that worshipped the god of Moab and, and all the pagan gods of the ancient world, and Balak was their king. Now at this particular time, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, had left Egypt and they were in the wilderness wanderings moving toward the promised land. And they were getting close to being that, there and Balak, the king of the Moabites, was frightened to death that they were going to come in and do exactly what God said they would do, and that is take over this land and drive out the pagan nations that were there. And Moabite, the Moabites were scared of that. Balak was frightened about that. So he found this Hebrew prophet, Balaam, and tried to entice this Hebrew prophet to put a curse on the people of God. Now, as a pagan king, he was convinced that if he could get one of... God's own prophets to curse the Hebrews, then obviously then they wouldn't be able to come in and take over and drive him and his people out. But Balaam refused to do that. So this back and forth for a while goes on there between Balak the Moabite king and Balaam the Hebrew prophet. And he just wouldn't do it. Finally, Balaam gave in. Okay, here's compromise. Finally he gave in and said, I will not curse them, but I'll tell you how you can beat them. And this is what he said to Balak. He says, throw a party. Because the Hebrew people can't resist a good party. I mean, throw a whip-snorting party, and they'll come to your party, and they'll get drunk as a skunk. And when they're drunk, then they'll participate in your worship of your pagan gods, and eventually they'll marry with your daughters. Two things that God had said for his people never to do, do not worship pagan gods, do not worship idols, and do not intermarry with the pagan nations around you. He said, but they'll do it if you just keep throwing a party. And so Balak threw a party. And they did the very thing. And the scripture says then the hand of God is going to discipline this, what Balaam said Balak would do. And that's exactly what happened. And so the teaching of Balaam, understand this, became kind of like to be like a Corinthian. You remember how they were living in Corinth? That kind of became a, a statement. You know, you live like a Corinthian. Well, everybody knew in the ancient world what that was like. The teaching of Balaam became that teaching of compromise. Now, so Jesus then is coming to the church in Pergamum and he's speaking to them about compromising on this issue of principle about things that were forbidden by God for his people to participate in. Now notice this. It wasn't the whole church that was doing it. Because Jesus had commendation. He said, you, you've held fast my name. You're holding to the faith. But he says, some, some in your midst are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans and to the teaching of Balaam. And verse 16, he says, repent. Now, I want you to understand who that command, repent, is to. It is not to those that are holding the teaching of Balaam. It is not to those who are holding the teaching of the Nicolaitan. Jesus is speaking to those who have held fast his name, 
those who have kept his faith. In other words, they're not practicing the teaching of Balaam. They're not practicing the teaching of Nicolaitans. But what they are doing is they are allowing some to do this in their midst. And by doing so, without confronting it and without doing something about it, they are compromising in principle, our own principle. Here's another way to say it. They were compromising with compromise. You understand? They, many of them were not compromising by following Balaam's teaching, by following Nicolaitan's teaching, but what they were doing is they were compromising with those who were compromising, and Jesus says, repent. Now, obviously, Jesus' call would be to those who are holding that false teaching to repent, but that's not who he's addressing. He is addressing those who are faithful in so many ways, but he says, but you're letting this go on in your midst. You need to recognize this compromise and deal with it. Now, folks, that's not easy for us to hear in a world that puts so much, so much emphasis on tolerance, right? Oh, how intolerant it would be to say something to someone within the church who is compromising. See, I'm not compromising. I'm, I've still got my act together. My doctrine's right. Everything is right about me. But to compromise with the compromise that is in our midst. Now you can bring it right here where we live. And you can see why this is a serious and very, well, very practical message for us. Over and over through the New Testament, folks, we have to deal with this. We are told not to compromise with compromise. Not to do it. Not to allow it in the body of Jesus. Jesus wrote through Paul to the Corinthian church. The Spirit of God inspired Paul to write to the Corinthian church. And because there was a man living in the church openly in an immoral sexual relationship and the Corinthians were just letting it go. They weren't doing anything to confront it. Now, Paul wrote to them in both the, this was referred to in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but the first time he wrote to them, he gave a call to the man to repent, and he said to them, go to him and call him to repentance, and if he does not repent, put him out of the church. That was his instructions. If he does not repent, give him a chance, but if he doesn't, put him out of the church. Don't compromise with compromise. Now, in our tolerant society, and so much of that has crept into the body of Christ today, oh, so many people would say, oh, that's just horrible to do that. What's horrible about it? Should we just allow it to just go on and just say, well, you just, you know, as long as I'm not doing it, it's okay for you. Well, that's the world's philosophy, but the New Testament teaches that the body of Christ is to be pure. That we are to police that kind of behavior with one another. That we are our brother's keeper in that sense. Not judgmental, but saying, repent of that brother, come back to the faith. And if they do not, Jesus says, put them out of the church. You know, it gets even worse, folks. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul writes to the church in Rome. And he says, I urge you, brothers, keep your eye on... And I love that he used the singular I. How practical is Scripture? How right up to the date is Scripture? He knew one day I was going to read this. So in, for me, he used the singular I. Didn't use the I's, plural. 
I urge, what's he urging you to keep your eye on? He says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and divisions. Turn away from them. Put them out. Now, he's not talking about disagreements, folks. We're human beings. We're going to have disagreements. We have to learn how to negotiate our disagreements. He's not talking about disagreements. He's talking about those who, as a practice, cause division within the body. He says, don't compromise with that, for it will ultimately destroy the body. Turn away from them. Now, that's hard to do, right? I mean, that's hard to hear. I was thinking about this this week. And I thought, you know what? What would happen in the church if we really practice this? I mean, we talk about, oh, we believe the Bible. Do we really? What about Romans 16, 17? What about some other places where he deals with gossip and all those other kinds of things, slander, that divide the body? What, 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 do we really believe the Bible? What about Romans 16, 17? If we practice this, those who are constantly causing division, not disagreements, division. You know, getting people on their team over here. You come over here with me and let's join against these and let's get our way. That's causing division. That's not disagreement. What if we really practiced and said, okay, we're turning away from you. Two things would happen. Church membership would go down. Church unity would go up. Now think about this. Church membership would go down. Church unity would go up. Man, we don't want to hear that. It got so quiet. Do you hear the crickets? If we believe the word of God, folks, this is the same message to us that Paul gave to the Roman church, he gave to the Corinthian church, that Jesus is giving to the church in Pergamum. Don't compromise with compromise. Don't say, well, just because I'm not, I'm not doing it, so whatever, I'm just going to let Jesus kind of deal with that person. Well, he will deal with but folks, he told us to deal with it too. We can't just back off and say, oh, man, I don't want to be judgmental. I, don't want, I want to be tolerant and all that kind of stuff. Let Jesus deal with it. Well, he'll do that, but he'll deal with us too if we don't deal with compromise. If we compromise with compromise, this is his message. He's calling those who have not compromised his name or the faith, he's calling them to repent. Repent for what? For compromising with compromise. For allowing this to go on in the midst of the body and not address it. The greatest example in all the Bible of the danger of compromise is the Old Testament story of Abraham and Lot. Many of you know very well much of the details of this story. It all begins really in Genesis chapter 13, the first book of the Bible. To refresh your memory, Abraham obviously was the father of the Hebrew nation. Abraham was an idolater. And the true and living God came to him and said, if you will leave this, if you'll leave Ur of the Chaldees, leave your gods and go to the land that I'll show you, I will make you the father of a great nation. I will bless your descendants and through you all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, I will create a nation, the Hebrew nation, Israelites. And out of that, of course we know, the Savior, Jesus, was going to be born. And Abraham was the one that, that, that God spoke to and called him. And Abraham, by faith, he left Ur of the Chaldees and, and, he, and he went to that land and so Abraham is the great patriarch of the Hebrew nation and ultimately even of the Christian faith because this is where it began in the making of this nation that God and then out of that nation the Savior, the Messiah is going to come. So Abraham, he's a big deal. He's a big deal. So Abraham 
has a nephew by the name of Lot. And so Abraham has kind of taken Lot on and, and their, their flocks and their herds are growing and it's getting confusing. Well, well whose cows and whose sheep are whose and all this kind of stuff. And so Abraham comes to Lot, his nephew one day, with a very generous offer. And he says to Lot, he says, Lot, we need to separate our, our flocks and herds so you decide what land you want and you can have that and I'll take what's left over. You choose any of the land you want, Lot, and you move your flocks and herds, and we'll separate, and I'll take what you leave behind. What a generous offer. So Lot is at a choice. He's at a crossroads, and every choice is a crossroads, is it not? Lot was at a crossroads. How is he going to make this choice? Because our choices have consequences. Let me give you three characteristics of Lot's choice, because we can watch where his life moves from this point in this choice. First of all, Lot makes a selfish choice. And this is where compromise always begins. Because there's something I want, and I want it bad enough, I'm willing to compromise to get it. So we make a choice, selfishly, as Lot did. And it says that what Lot did, selfishly, he chose the best of the land for himself. Genesis 13.10 says it was like the garden of the Lord. It's wonderful land. You go, well, what's wrong with that? Abraham said, choose what you want. I'll take what's left over. Because this was an incredibly selfish choice on Lot's part. He was only there because his uncle Abraham had even brought him with him. Abraham was the patriarch of patriarchs. Abraham was the elder statesman. It was to Abraham whom God spoke, not to Lot. And Lot ignored all of that and made a selfish choice for himself and picked the best and the richest land for himself. That's where it started. The second thing about his choice was it was a stupid choice. Because in chapter 13, verse 10, it goes on and says, not only was this land that he chose like the garden of the Lord, but it was like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. How many of you have ever heard one reference in all of the Bible to Egypt being good? Egypt, all through the scripture, old and new, is a symbol of everything that is against God. Everything that is evil. Not only what they did with the Hebrew people enslaving them for 400 years, every reference to Egypt is an evil reference. And so here's Lot. He's making the selfish choice, but it's also very stupid because, you see, the idea was here is that not only can I have this like the garden of the Lord, but I can get a little bit of Egypt with it too. Not going to have to live there, but I can, get a, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can ride the fence here a little bit and get this land that's like the garden of the Lord. But it also is like the land of Egypt. So there's the good, but I want to toy with a little bit. of here. I'm not going, to, not going to fully participate, but you know, every now and then, a little Egypt's not too bad. Notice this, chapter 13, verse 12. It says that Lot moved his tents as far as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the King James translates that. He pitched his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And the indication here is that he didn't move into the city initially. No, he's not going to do that. Sodom and Gomorrah, the evil cities. No, I'm just going to pitch my tent in that direction. Just live on the outskirts. I can trip into town every now and then, come back. I'm not going to become a participant. 
But listen, Lot's decision to selfishly choose was his first compromise. But this choice was also stupid then because he pitched his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah. He should have been getting far as away from that place as he possibly could, but he wanted to get close. And then it reveals that this compromising choice was also very short-sighted because watch this progression. Watch this progression. He selfishly chooses the best for himself. He stupidly moves his tents to the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in chapter 19 it says, Lot is sitting at the gate. Now a lot has transpired during that time. But chapter 19 says, now Lot is sitting at the gate into the city, Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is a euphemism for he has become one of the city leaders. That's what the city leaders did. They gathered at the gate. Those who had power, those who were full participants in the government of the city, they gathered at the gate of the city. And that's where they did the city's business. So he has gone from choosing the best for himself, pitching his tent towards Sodom on the outskirts, to now he's sitting at the very gate. He is a full participant in the life of the two most evil cities the Bible records. You see where this took him? Now I can guarantee you that when Lot made that decision to selfishly choose the best for himself, he never dreamed that he would be a full participant in the life of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you know the rest of the story, he is eventually willing to even give his daughters to the men of the city to be used for them by them for pleasure. Wow, how far we have come. How far Lot has come from being blessed there with his uncle Abraham to now being willing to give his own daughters over to be ravaged by the men of the city. Well, it all began with compromise. A little compromise. Compromise with a little compromise. A selfish choice, a stupid choice, and an incredibly short-sighted choice. You see, that's, that's Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum. Sure, some of you are very faithful in my name. You've kept the faith, but look at this. Look what's going on here. You're tolerating the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You're tolerating the teaching of Balaam. And you're doing nothing about it. Repent. Repent of your inactivity. Repent of your refusal to recognize the compromise that you are allowing because eventually, listen folks, compromise is like a cancer. It never stays where it is. It always grows. That's why Paul says, put divisive people out of the church because if you don't deal with it, if they will not repent... It's going to spread like a cancer through the body. In 40 years of ministry, I've seen more churches destroyed by divisive people than false doctrine. People Hello? that were just compromised with. Hello? Hello? Jesus is calling saying, sick them, Jimmy. Right. I don't know. Randy Alcorn wrote a book a number of years ago titled Lord... Falgren's letters. How many of you have read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Some of you have. C.S. Lewis, a great Christian philosopher, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters where he imagines a managing demon communicating to his other demon how to make an inroad into an individual's life and devastate and derail his life. Well, Randy Alcorn 
wrote an up, kind of an update of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, and he called it Lord Falgren's Letter. Now, Fal Lord Falgren was a supervising demon over a demon by the name of Squaltaint. I don't know where he came up with that name. It's kind of a cool name. He was a lesser demon. And so Lord Falgren is assigned to give instruction and advice to Squaltaint, who had been assigned to a Christian by the name of Jordan Fletcher. And Squaltaint's job is to wreck Jordan Fletcher's life. And so his supervising demon, Lord Falgren, is giving him advice about how to, comp how to do it. And listen to what he says. He says to his underling, subtlety is everything. You are conducting a sting operation, not an air raid. Know when to back off and when to come back at a more opportune time. Be gentle. Talk lovingly to the little lamb. Speak reassuring words over the raw flesh of your malice. Wear the skin of civility. Stroke his cheek with one hand while you slit his throat with the other. He's in sales. Well, so are we. The salesman builds credibility as a platform for persuasion. Hold out candy to lure the child into the car. Offer Fletcher what he wants. Don't shut the door until he's safely in your grasp. The best killers are the sweet talkers. Everything they think they want has a cost. Your job is simply to hide that cost. Rearrange the price tags. Offer Fletcher a better deal than the other side. Do this by offering the same product at a cheaper price. The enemy calls them to count the cost. We call them to miscalculate the cost. Get Fletcher to sin on credit. He'll be bankrupt when the bills come due. That's why Jesus is saying what he's saying to the church of Pergamon. If you allow this, if you allow this slow thing to start, it's not going to stay there. It's going to spread because you can't compromise with compromise. Lord Falgren's advice to Squaltaint, to Jordan Fletcher, is to be nice, be slow. Give him what he wants, but just hide the cost. So that by the time he sees the cost, it's already over. How many Christian lives have been dashed on the rocks of compromise in that very way? That one day ended up, I've never known anybody who put their life on the rocks of devastation that came to me and said, when I made that first decision, I knew where it was going to take me. Not one time. They will always say, if I had known when I made that first compromising choice where it was going to take me, I will promise you I never would have. That's the way compromise works. So Jesus says, nip it in the bud, Pergamum. Yeah, some of you are faithful. Some of you are doing it right. But I have this against you. You are letting the termites of compromise go unrecognized and unconfronted in your midst. You need to repent. You know, every one of us, has to look inside and ask ourselves the question, where am I 
compromising with compromise. Where am I as a part of this body of believers kind of doing the same thing that some of them in Pergamum were doing? You know, I'm doing my best to walk with the Lord. I'm doing my best to stay faithful in, in truth. I'm doing my best to honor Jesus. But yeah, there, there's some folks here that I'm watching what they're doing and I know that's not right and I'm not participating. You know what Jesus' word would be to you? Repent of your unwillingness to confront that. Repent of it. He's not, call, he's not calling them to repent. He's calling us to repentance who are allowing ourselves to compromise with compromise. Because he knows if we don't deal with it, it slowly filters out. And eventually, the devastation is beyond repair. Eventually, we become, as we're going to study later on, the church in Laodicea. Jesus' word to Pergamon says, you don't, you don't want to be like the church in Laodicea. So recognize compromise. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for your word that is so relevant today. Uh, as we look at it, one thing has not changed. Your truth has not changed. And the sinful nature of mankind has not changed in all these thousands of years. So we are still in need of hearing your call to not compromise, nor compromise with compromise within the body of Christ. May you make this application, Father, into the hearts of your people where it needs to be made. Only you can do that in a way that it will not be destructive, that it won't be led of the flesh. Let it be led of your spirit in order that we may do in our individual lives what has to be done, and that as individuals we will be willing to do within the body of Jesus what has to be done. To protect your name's sake, to protect the purity of the gospel, and to protect the body of Christ, which is the vehicle for the gospel of Jesus into a dead, lost, and dying world. This is our prayer in humility before you. In Jesus' name, amen.